The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you, and the things they have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the reading of God's Word. You may be seated. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, my name is Justin Kramer. My wife and I have been members here uh, since the very beginning. So we're going to be in 1 Peter. Let's let's pray and then we can get started. Heavenly Father, there are... We just, we just want to recognize that there are so many, so many other things that we're probably thinking about, so many other things that probably are occupying our minds, and they're good things. They're things that you've given us, Lord, they're things in which um, we need to be thinking about. And it, it's so difficult to find time uh, to quiet our souls and our minds. And so we need that this morning, Lord. We need what you have for us in First Peter, Lord. We don't even know what we need, uh, but you do. And in your kindness, you've brought us here today. And so I pray that we would leave here uh, with a greater awareness of who you are and and who and what we are in light of that. And Lord, um, just uh, Lord, remove any desire in me to want to preach a good sermon. Lord, I want First Peter 1, 10 through 13, Lord, to speak for itself. Lord, your word stands on its own. And so would you prime our hearts, Lord, to be watered and to ultimately grow and bear fruit. Um, Lord, and if we are unaware of our position before you, Lord, that we would leave here uh, with a clarity and a confidence um, of who you are. So we ask you for these things. In Christ's name, amen. I want to ask a question. You ever thought about why you like home so much? Uh, anybody ever gone on a long trip? And what do you say? I just can't wait to get home. Or if you've maybe even gone overseas for an extended period of time uh, for uh, missions or vacation, and, and you get back to the customs gate, and they say, welcome home. Right? What, what is it about home that is so enticing? And I think there's probably a, a, a couple of things, but particularly there was an article that was written in The Atlantic magazine. And the writer, who's a psychologist, suggests that at its core, home is such a safe place because it's a, a definitive place, right? It defines and assigns us, right? If you go into someone's home, it's decorated differently than your home. Because the decorations are a reflection of the individual. And so there's a, a sense of ultimate security and safety 
inside of a home that doesn't exist anywhere else. And so it really does. There's actually been studies written that you uh, um, internally cannot sleep as well away from home as you do at home. And so the opposite of being at home is being away, right? Or, or that, that feeling of not being able to go to that place where you sort of just been able, are able to take a deep breath. And so in the Bible, those are exiles. And that's where we've started in 1 Peter, is that uh, these are exiles who were kicked out of Babylon in the dispersion, and now they occupy a land that isn't their own. And what's interesting about that is we know Scripture tells us that we are strangers and aliens. We are sojourners in a foreign land. That we, even now, we feel at home here, but this isn't really our home. And so one of the questions that I think First Peter begs is, what takes place that's not your home? Right? There's risk, there's trials, there's sufferings. And so if you haven't, uh, if this is your first sort of uh, sermon in our, uh, this is our fourth sermon in First Peter, the first two verses focus on who's Peter writing the letter to. And it's that group of people who are wandering, who are in a land that is not theirs. So they, they, they lack a feeling, uh, an at-homeness, if you will. And so Peter's writing to them for their encouragement. In verses 3 through 5, he tells them that even though they're not at home, that they will be one day, and that that's their hope. And he tries to cast a vision that they can anchor their hearts to. And then last week in verses 6 through 9, Peter tells them, look, while you are not at home, you will face trials and sufferings of various kinds. And those things, those sufferings, those events will ultimately make the moment at which you get home sweeter. And so this is where we sort of pivot. And starting in verse 10, or really the the end of verse 9, he tells them, he said, and all of this is to obtain the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And so verses 10 through 13, if you've, if you've looked at them or maybe we just read it and, and you're like, what the heck does that mean? Right? It is sort of a sticky text. It has a lot going on. It's sort of a pregnant paraphrase of a whole lot. And so I think probably the best way for us to work through it this morning is really just to kind of pull it apart and kind of see it for what it is. So just sort of if you have your Bibles, we will be using them. And we just kind of go line by line in verses 10 through 12 and kind of unpack what, what Peter's saying there because it really is a pause. This is, in, in, the, uh, in the writing, an independent clause. So you could really remove verses 10 through 12, and verse 13 flows right after the first nine verses. And so let's sort of unpack 10 through 12 and, and, then, and then come home and spend our, our time at the end on verses 13, which is really the culmination or the climax of the, the, whole, the whole book so far. So, so Peter starts off here and says, concerning this salvation, 
Remember, he's writing to a group of Jews and Gentiles. The Gentiles most likely would have been largely unfamiliar with any sort of Old Testament texts. Right? They would have known that the, the Israelites, the Jews, had a book, had the Torah, had scriptures, but they probably wouldn't have known. Many of them wouldn't have known the contents of it. So Peter's writing, he says, now, because he just said in the verse before, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. So he pauses and he says, now, concerning this salvation, in verse 9, and, and, and so much would have been meant there for the reader, right? Even Jews were familiar that all of history had been arcing towards the coming Messiah, right? I mean, we see in multiple accounts in Jesus' own life and ministry where he's having to articulate to his disciples and to Jews and Pharisees and Sadducees that the scriptures are pointing to him. We see that in, in, in Matthew. We see it in Luke. We see it in all of the gospels where Jesus is having to regularly explain that the scriptures were actually pointing to him. And he was the fulfillment of those scriptures. So Peter would have been pausing here and sort of trying to sort of remind the Jews of this and then invite the Gentiles in that this salvation, that there, there was a, a, a bend of history prior to the Christ event that was all moving towards the life, death, and burial, resurrection of Jesus. And then after the Christ event, history's arcing towards a new Christ event, his second coming, his return. And so Peter's sort of reminding them of this. And so in that way, the Old Testament, the New Testament rather, only makes sense in light of the Old Testament. I heard somebody this week say, uh, if you want to understand your New Testament, read more of your Old Testament. How many of us read our Bibles that way? I mean, it, it, the, the allure is away from the foundational parts of the Bible. And the same, the th same thing was true with the Jews and Gentiles here in the first century. And so Peter's telling them, look, this salvation, which, which is outlined really well in Ephesians 1, 7 through 14, which is that God chose a people. And the people rebelled against the God. And now our citizenship, at the moment Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the garden, our citizenship in heaven was permanently rejected. We were exiles and no longer allowed access. If you've read the first couple chapters of Genesis, the gates of that heavenly city were guarded by an angel. We were kicked out with no way home. And so a, a savior king needed to come and redeem a people, clothe them in suitable clothing. And, and then in order to have that happen, the debts have to be paid, which is different than debts being forgiven, right? If somebody forgives your debt, it's sort of just let it go. If somebody pays your debt, there's a cost there, but of Christ. And this Servant, suffering servant, as the Bible says, came at the fullness of time or at just the right time to save and redeem a people and to inaugurate or start a new kingdom with a sort of new set of laws to where our citizenship is now restored. 
And so Peter would have been meaning all of this just in the phrase concerning this salvation. And he moves on just following along. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. And so as I was even reading and thinking on this, I sort of paused on the phrase, the grace that was to be yours. Was there a grace that New Testament post-crucifixion Christians had that pre-Christ they didn't? And that's not what this text is saying. See, the Old Testament prophets here, the prophets who prophesied, they prophesied in faith, right? They, they received, as we see in the preceding verses, they received sort of a, uh, an inclination, a revelation from the Holy Spirit, helping them understand that a Christ was coming, a Messiah was coming, that their, 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 their lives and citizenship would be restored and they would be back in right standing with God. But they had no idea what or when or how. And what he is saying here, Peter, the grace that was to be yours, was that there was going to be a particular grace that those post-Christ event Christians would be able to participate in. Because whether you are an Old Testament saint or a newly converted believer, every Christian who has ever lived is saved by grace through faith period. And so in the Old Testament, right, Christ had not come and paid that debt. And so that righteousness was extended to them on credit. And in New Testament Christians, we, we, we are able to receive our redemption on debit, right? That's what it means when Paul says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, right? It's the holy credit card. The funds aren't there yet, but in God's kindness, he extends them righteousness on credit. And we go to the bank account of Christ filled with his blood, and we receive our redemption and salvation now on debit. And so there is a particular grace that we are able to participate in. And I think they, uh, Peter really sort of unpacks that in the next set of verses here, if you're following along. So we've said, concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. I think Peter means us to read this in a couple of ways. First, in that we can read it sequentially that the life and ministry and ultimately the death and crucifixion of Christ are the sufferings that he was to endure and the glories to follow that. His life and ministry, though, were beginning a new kingdom. That's why in Mark 1.15, he looks at he looks at the listener and he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. The Old Testament saints, when they would look forward, they would see, um, and a really helpful description about, uh, that I've heard from another pastor is, it's like looking at mountain ranges. Right? The Old Testament saints would look at a, a set of mountain ranges and say, peak one and peak two. Right? Christ coming, 
redeeming his people, and then coming again and making the world right. They saw those as simultaneous events because they're looking at the mountain ranges, but little do you know there are hundreds of miles between the mountain ranges. And so as New Testament Christians, we have the clarity to look back on the Christ event and look forward to the future return of Christ with a clarity that they didn't have. And so when we're reading the sufferings of the Christ, Romans 10.4, Matthew 5 tells us that all of the law was fulfilled. That, that Old Testament Christians, for lack of a better uh, phrase, were, were swinging and missing on the law. And that every dot of the law was fulfilled in the person and life of Jesus. Now, putting to bed this sort of old regime and inaugurating a new set of, 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 of orders in the way that we relate to God. The subsequent glories that, that, that were achieved are, are namely that Jesus Christ now sits on the throne ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father, subjecting all things, what the Bible says, underneath his feet. And so the main glory that Christ achieved on the cross was that. And I think probably the most helpful way to think about all the benefits that flow from that are that things are now put on a leash, if you will. Right? So there, there is a bound on suffering. The gospel can go forth. We now have conviction of sin because we have an indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We're able to see Scripture and its illumination to us in a way that the Old Testament Christians weren't. And so all of those sort of glories flow from the fact that Christ is now sitting at the right hand of the Father. And his, his role at the right hand of the Father is multifaceted, right? We know he's interceding for us. He's praying for us when we're not praying for ourselves. He's, as, as we see in the first part of 1 Peter, he is safeguarding our future inheritance. He is ruling and reigning over all things. But that's not the only way I think that we should read or that Peter would have us read the subsequent sufferings and glories. I think it's pretty clear that Peter's also suggesting that as we can look at the life of Christ where there is suffering and then the subsequent glory, him being enthroned, that's Psalms 110, is angels welcoming Christ back to heaven as the champion. But we're also meant to read this as New Testament Christians that our lives, too, will be marked by sufferings and subsequent glories. That's, that's what Paul means when he says, I, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. So it's not to suggest that, that somehow Christ's sufferings and what he endured for our behalf, on our behalf, is sort of missing anything. But there's a sense in which re repetition provides clarity. Right, we were talking about this earlier this morning. Um, there's a, if you've ever seen the show West Wing, you should. Uh, there's a, a uh, I was listening to something earlier this week, 
And there's a guy, this is his fifth time through the seven seasons of West Wing. It's like, dude, give it a break, right? I mean, you're going to get what you're going to get out of it. But there is a sense in which each time through West Wing or any time we revisit something, a, a, a deeper clarity exists. And so as Christians, if, if Christ, if the life of Christ sort of gave us an outline of suffering, every time a brother or sister suffers, it retraces that outline and provides a deeper, more meaningful clarity to the suffering servant. It provides a, a deeper clarity on, on the work and, 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 and life of Christ, but it also highlights what we see in the New Testament, where is if we will be in glory with him, we, also, we will also have to suffer like him. And so for us, what are the subsequent glories? Where's the payoff, right, if the suffering part is true? The New Testament gives us two indications, and both in 2 Corinthians, that our, our, our subsequent glories, if you will, are twofold. And this is 2 Corinthians 4.17, obviously, the subsequent glories are, are the glory to come when we exist in perfect harmony and union in the heavenly city with Christ and all things are made right. 2 Corinthians 4.17. But there's also a sense in which, and this is 2 Corinthians 3.18, where Paul says, we all with unveiled face are being transformed from one degree of glory to another which means we are being molded through our sufferings into Christ-likeness, that the fruits of the Spirit are being sort of burned into our lives and our hands and our hearts through the sufferings we endure. And so we're being transformed into Christ-likeness through the fruits of the Spirit in a way that Old Testament Christians weren't. And so in the same way that Christ suffered and sits on the throne as his glory we also participate in his sufferings. But we're promised degrees of glory now. But this light momentary affliction is working for you an eternal weight of glory. And that's where the verse is heading here. And that's where really the first 13 verses are heading is towards that glory. But if our only hope, Jesus dying on the cross, our hope is incomplete. We don't simply look at Christ's life suffering and say, he did it, now let me buckle up and do it. That motivation falls to the wayside pretty quickly. No, the distinctly Christian hope says that we look back on the cross, but we must look forward at our future hope with Christ. That's what, that's what, that's what Peter says here. He says, your hope is undefiled, unfading, impenetrable, inexpressible, that the distinctly Christian hope can't just look back at the cross. It must look forward. And he goes on to say, like we need a lamp up here. These lights are a little tough, or I'm getting older. But the large print Bibles are so big. 
predicted the sufferings of the Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them, the Old Testament prophets, that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced. They were acting as a forerunner, right? They were paving the way, working through the understanding, through the power of the Spirit, as to the promises to come. And we see even in Hebrews 11, Abraham dying in faith, not receiving what had been promised. But he hoped for a better country, a better city, a city to come. And so Abraham didn't receive what was promised but he will. And so that's how they were serving us, is acting as a sort of forerunner. But you and the things that have now been announced to you through, who, through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. The gospel is being preached. No angel that I'm aware of has ever shared the gospel. They attest to the gospel. They proclaim the gospel. And they long to be a part of this new sort of kingdom, a kingdom in which the gospel is spreading. Right? The gospel was highly concentrated to the Jews. And the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ opened it up, opened up citizenship into heaven, now taking applications. Angels long to be a part of the spreading and advancement of the fame of Jesus. Okay, now we get to the point of the first 13 verses of 1 Peter. He says, therefore, right? He's referring back to the entire set of verses. Again, you could take 10 through 12 out entirely. It's an independent clause. We're picking right back up here in verse 13 after verse 9. And he says, therefore, Referring the therefore to, because your inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Therefore, because it's kept in heaven for you and is safeguarded by God's power through faith for salvation. Therefore, you've been grieved by various trials, even if just for a little while. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the mountaintop of the first 13 verses. This is where Peter is trying to take them. Set your hope fully, which is a command. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Our eyes must be forward and toward that coming day with Jesus. That the kind of Christian hope that exists is that there is a life, namely eternal life, an existence with Christ that the Bible says no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind could ever conceive. And you know, if you ever listened to Christian hymns Almost every Christian hymn ends pointing that way, right? So uh, it is well, and Lord haste the day when faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as scroll, the tr when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, 
We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. How great thou art. When Christ shall come with shouts of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart. Then I shall bow in humble adoration and proclaim, my God, how great thou art. There's dozens and dozens and dozens of examples where the only way that Christian hope is different than non-Christian hope is because of the end destination and the foundation in which that hope is set on. And so we as Christians are able to hang our hope on our future inheritance with Christ. That is amazing news, isn't it? I'm not sure that it is, actually. It's the, entire, the entire first chapter is moving towards this sort of triumph, the hope that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And I find myself wanting to reach for that. But then I had to be honest and square up that that, that promise of my future inheritance doesn't really sound like much of an inheritance to me. That maybe what I mean to say is that the generations of Christians who have felt that hope, have, have longed for that hope, and they've walked through some of the, the deepest waters of Christian suffering and even death, most of the time doesn't really feel like much hope to me. And in fact... I'm a privileged American male that doesn't really want for much of anything. And if I'm honest, that future hope that I'm promised and I see throughout the entire New Testament doesn't really look like that much better of an alternative to the good life I have now. The tension of a part of me says, yes, Lord, but there is a much bigger, louder, more prevalent and dominant voice that says, yeah, I kind of like the relationship and the arrangement I have with Jesus now. I love my job. I love my family. I love my church. Things are pretty good. I, I, I don't really know that I would need or want that sort of hope. Because at times, eternity scares me because I can't understand it. I don't really want to do anything forever. Heaven seems boring, right? I mean, how many times can you, I mean, even you can only watch West Wing a couple of times. I mean, how many times can you hang out with Jesus, right? I mean, the return of Christ seems like it will probably come at an inconvenient time for me. This isn't what I would understand hope to be. This just sounds like a fair alternative to my life. And in my experience, this is actually how most Christians feel. In the church, there's sort of, well, before I talk about the church, let me talk about In-N-Out Burger. Right? In-N-Out Burger has a cult following. And you're either in love with it or you hate it. 
right? And so I talked to a guy recently, and he's like, I went to In-N-Out Burger, I was super hype, and it just wasn't that great. But when you go with somebody, they're like, oh, In-N-Out Burger, man, you got to get the fries, animal style, get the double-double, they give you the whole deal. And you're in the moment, right? And you're feeling the anticipation, the excitement of like the In-N-Out Burger experience. And then you leave, and you're kind of like, not that great. That's actually what happens a lot in the church, is we're sort of around each other, screaming, yes, our future lives to come. Yes, the inheritance that is Christ. Yes, that, that new heavens and new earth. And then when we leave, it sort of falls apart because we don't really think that that's hope. It really doesn't sound that exciting. And so I want to, in these final minutes, I want to give us permission to be in that space. Right? Because hear me say this. You absolutely can be a Christian saved by grace through faith and not desire to go to heaven. You can be a Christian saved by grace through faith and struggle and feel fearful of eternity, of, of the life to come. And so I want to, let's, let's be in that space here because maybe you're even in here and you say, you know what, actually, by God's grace, because of my set of circumstances, that is my hope. Is, a, is, is, a, is the life to come. And so I think if, if, if you're on either side of the camp, you're on the side of the camp that I'm on where it's more often than not, that really doesn't sound that attractive to me. Or by God's grace, you do find that to be a hope. Hang with me. We're going somewhere. I think there is fruit at the end of us shaking this tree for both of us. So the question I think that needs to be asked here, because... Right, Peter is finishing. Let's just reread the text. Peter's finishing in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That text is meant to rescue them from some of the most grievous trials, from living in a foreign land, from all that life will and won't be. That is their hope. And so the question is, for us, why do we not find our future with Christ as our ultimate hope? Why does that sound like a plan B and a half, maybe? Let me just give you, just being totally upfront, it is from my personal experience. Um, I grew up in a church where bad theology was taught. I... I totally had life with Christ now, life with Christ to come, uh, eternity, the second coming, all of those things poorly represented from Scripture. And I have scars on my heart and in my soul and on my mind from the bad theology. And I can just tell you, in my experience, particularly in the Southeast, I think reason number two is I tend to focus on what my loss will be, right? If, I, if, I'm, if I'm going to depart and be with Christ, what am I losing? I'll no longer be Becca's husband or Eli's dad or a businessman. I'll, I'll, I'll lose my family. I'll lose my freedom. And for what? Something that I'm not even sure sounds all that great. 
And then I think I, I, I don't see Christ as gain, right? So when, when Peter says to live is Christ and to die is gain, Paul says, I am, I am gaining something that I cannot gain here. And I don't see it that way. And maybe, maybe there are a number of other reasons. And I want you to do, I, want, I really want you to do this. I want you, between now and community groups, when we meet, whether you're tomorrow, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, we just started a Friday morning community group. I want you to do the hard work of asking yourself that question. Not the answer that you'll be judged for, but the answer that's actually in your heart. That doesn't make it the right answer, but it's the real answer. Right? Just because I feel that way, that that doesn't sound like much hope to me, doesn't mean that that's right. Right? Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and sick. Who can understand its ways? Right? What I need, what we need, is not our view of our hope to come. We need God's view of our hope to come. We, we need what we see at the end of that eternity rainbow replaced with what God actually has for us. And whether you struggle to even find that as enticing or motivating or hopeful, or you, you find it oftentimes very hopeful. What we need is what Peter is painting for us here. That there is a hope coming that is more secure, more full, more sweet than anything we know. And we need our vision replaced. Right? So here are three practical things that we can do to address our misplaced hopes. Right? C.S. Lewis actually says in his book, Weight of Glory... Now, if we are made for heaven, the desire for our proper place will be already in us, but not yet attached to the true object, and will appear even as a rival object. It must bear at best only a symbolic relation to what will truly satisfy. Whether you are a Christian or you are not, you were made for heaven. And what happens in God's kindness when he gives us a new taste bud, a new set of taste buds, right, a new heart, Replacing your, your heart of stone with a heart of flesh. The old is gone, the new has come. You are a new creation. We now have the ability in glimpses to see God for who he is. And to see the hope that he has given us for what it really is. That's not our, that's not our preset disposition we wake up every morning. We have to fight for that. But unlike non-Christians, we have the ability to have real hope. And even if you're in here and you're not a Christian, you hope, C.S. Lewis would just tell you, I think the Bible would suggest, your hope is just in the thing that is meant to be symbolic of the real hope. And so here are three helpful, for me, helpful, 
applications to address our misplaced hope. Number one is you have to admit how you really feel. It is okay to be honest with God. You don't have to be nice either. But you do need to be honest. If heaven sounds boring, then say that. If you'd rather live here and continue with your family and uh, your job, it, say that. And not just like one time, but do the hard work every day of self-reflection. Where, where do I find my heart today? The heart is the wellspring of life. From it flows everything. If we're not tending to our hearts for the garden that it is, all of its produce and fruit will rot and die. So number one, admit how you feel. Confess it. Number two, repent for believing that the desires you have and the hopes that you have are superior to the desires God has created you for. You know, the great paradox in Christianity is the only way we can love God is if we desire him, yet we can't change our own desires. This is St. This is Augustine. The only way we can love God is if we desire him. We can't even control our own desires. And what we're actually doing is finding ourselves struggling because we live in a world's system that tells us that hope is everywhere but Jesus. And so we're sort of this new creation living as exiles in a land that tells us the way we do things, the way we want to do things, the way the Bible tells us to do things is wrong. That you ought to be hoping in everything outside of Jesus. And so we're pulled every, every direction but towards Christ. And so we live in a, 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 very, a very difficult tension as Christians. God, as the creator, has set us the creation with a set of limits and boundaries and a set of uh, uh, systems that give us the ability to flourish. And our highest joy is when we're operating within the systems that God has created. And what God has said is that I've designed for you a better place. I've designed for you. We do by not believing God and trying to misdirect that hope is we're actually rivaling God. The root of all of our sin is our desire to be God. Look at Adam. Look at Satan. We are rivaling God by refusing to believe that the structure and limits and bounds and arcs of history that he created in his divine providence aren't near as good as what I've created in my little world here. We need to repent for that. We need to confess that this is how we feel. And then we need to repent for feeling that way. Number three. We have to ask him to change our affections. 
and for us to see the hope of our future life with him as something to be desired. The answer is not try harder. Because you or I are not in control of our own affections. If you hate broccoli, you hate broccoli. It just is what it is. You didn't just wake up one morning and decide to love Jesus. That's not how that worked. You love Jesus because he loved you first. And so we have to ask God and beg him to change our desires and affections to be bent towards the hope that he has laid out for us, not the hope that we have laid out for ourselves. And by doing that, by asking, we're we're actually bowing our knee and acknowledging that we are not the creator and sustainer, but that we are the created. And we're submitting to his way as sweeter and better than ours. Confess, repent, and ask God to change our view of that coming day. You can't manufacture hope today, feel more at home here in a world system that disagrees with everything the Bible has laid out to be true than we do with Christ. There is a deep, going going back to where we started, why is home so important? I think the way that I think about it most succinctly is that home is so great because there's a deep sense of at-homeness and all that that means. And for Christians, there is a day coming when we will feel our true, deep at-homeness in Christ. And we we get bits of that now. We get tastes of that now in the church. In those moments where we're reading our Bibles, fellowshipping with believers. But there is an at-homeness coming where we will feel more security, more peace, more identity than we could ever pretend to know now. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.